Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Love Talk Radio. everybody. <clears throat> Hope you're enjoying your morning. Currently getting hammered here in New York with a nor'easter. We had a bunch of rain for an extended period of time, probably three or four inches. Um, and then now we're getting hammered with wind. Very, very wild, very crazy. Hopefully my drive to Washington, D.C. is not going to be, uh, you know, interrupted by flooding or trees down. That would be a giant pain in the ass, but what are you going to do? It is what it is. Eventually I'll get there, even if it takes 47 hours. Um, Anyway, uh, big show for you guys today. I think you're going to like it. I think you're going to like it. I certainly like it. We're going to dive headfirst into the most controversial topics, because that's how we roll. Uh, Noam Chomsky made some comments on vaccines that are splitting the left. So we're going to talk about that. Uh, Brianna Joy Gray pressed Ro Khanna on Biden being Joe Biden and weak and uh, not really caring too much about what happens with the Build Back Better bill. We have Barack Obama giving the worst speech of his entire life by far, effectively saying, take the crumbs and shut up. Um, Elon Musk becomes the richest man in the world 
the amount of money he made in one day is going to make you want to jump off of a building. And then what he did next after he made that money is further going to make you want to jump off of a building. So uh, I swear you're not going to want to miss any of this stuff. It is uh, really something else. And then also Mitch McConnell compares the Build Back Better agenda to the New Deal, and I have a lot to say about that. So anyway, without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. And I'm not even giving you, I'm giving you the tiniest of teasers today. I have like seven more stories that you're going to absolutely love. So let's kick it off with the most controversial one, Noam Chomsky. So Noam Chomsky, at the age of 174, has been still making the rounds and doing interviews. I respect the fact that he kind of almost exclusively does new media interviews. Uh, I can't tell you the last time I saw him on some official, you know, uh, giant media outlet. I mean, probably because years ago, at least the major ones in the U.S. banned him. They banned him because, you know, he spit too much fire, spoke too much truth to power, and they said he lacks concision, which means he doesn't know how to talk in a punchy way. He, he's very drawn out and thorough when he explains something. Uh, so you're going to see two comments here that are splitting the left. He was asked about uh, vaccine mandates a while ago. And um, maybe when I say a while ago, maybe a couple months ago or something like that. At most a year ago, but I think it was just a couple of months ago. So you're going to see his initial response on vaccine mandates. And then uh, just recently, so I guess within the past week or two, he was asked again about vaccine mandates. So he's going to give his answers here, plural. He doesn't just give one answer. It seems like he changed his position a little bit from what it was before to what it is now. And uh, then we'll come back, dive into the controversy head first, and I'll tell you guys what my take on the overall thing is. What are your thoughts on mandating vaccines? to get a vaccine. 
but then it is your responsibility to isolate yourself so you don't harm others. Um, when you talk about folks having the uh, freedom to you know, separate if they don't want to abide by these vaccine mandates, what would that look like on a practical level? Does that mean that folks uh, need to to stay home and have like groceries delivered to them? Does it mean like separated communities of folks who are unvaccinated, or just you know how do you think this would practically play out? Same way as with people who say that I don't want to, I don't want to accept traffic rules. I suppose there were people who said it's an attack on my liberty to make me stop at a red light. It's government overreach. We don't want the state to have that power over my private life. Well, such people have to be, they should have the decency to remove themselves from the community. If they refuse to do that, then measures have to be taken to safeguard the community from them. Then comes the practical question that you ask, uh, how can we get food to them? Well, that's actually their problem. If they really become destitute, then yes, you have to move in with some measure to uh, secure their survival, uh, just as you do with people in jail, for example. But uh, that's really not the issue. Okay, so uh, there's a lot to unpack here. Let's go through it. Um, first, let's talk about the, the broadest issue, which is do the vaccines work? Now, most of the people who watch my show are going to roll their eyes at the fact that we even have to cover this part of it, but we do, we do, because some people who are coming across this video have not seen the other 7,412 secular talk segments on the vaccines, and maybe they've been brainwashed or been misled or been fed bad information. So on that question, do the vaccines work? The answer is yes, and it's overwhelming. There's a mountain of evidence. I think the best single example of the vaccines working is the French study of over 20 million people, and the vaccines reduced uh, severe illness, hospitalization, and death by 90%. 90%. Now, uh, if you're reasonable, that's game, set, match on that question. Okay? And, but uh, honestly, you know, that's not the only piece of evidence. That's just one of many. I'm just giving you the single clearest example that the vaccines work. So, any anecdotal stories you hear about, like, you know, Nicki Minaj's friend's cousin's ball sack or whatever, or, you know, one person having a, uh, a bad response to the vaccine or somebody dying after the vaccine, you have to understand there's a difference between the macro picture and the micro picture. So, of course, you know, there's uh, when you give billions of people a vaccine, some people are going to have a bad reaction to it. Some people are going to die after the vaccine, even though it has nothing to do with the vaccine. Because if you give a vaccine to an 87-year-old, and then the 87-year-old dies two and a half weeks later, sometimes an 87-year-old just dies. Okay, so I don't, I, I don't know how to stress this any more clearly, but you have to look at the overall data. I don't care about your anecdotes. Uh, now, by the same token, if you wanted to play the anecdote game, we could play the anecdote game, and I've told you guys this before, but Sagar and Jetty had COVID. He had a breakthrough case. Um, he was mildly symptomatic. He was in a room with Crystal. And Crystal, I mean, with how contagious Delta is, and that's what Sagar had, the Delta variant, with how contagious Delta is, Crystal definitely should have gotten COVID, being four feet away from this guy, and they're talking for over two hours for their show. She didn't get COVID. Why? Well, she's vaccinated. 
Now, also, I do Crystal Kylan friends with Crystal. I'm with her a lot. Obviously, uh, if she got it, then I should have got it. And I didn't get it, and she didn't get it. So if you want to play the anecdote game, which we shouldn't do, but if you wanted to, okay, you give me every anecdote you give me about here's the bad thing that happened when this person took a vaccine. I can give you a counter anecdote of somebody who didn't get sick because of the vaccine, or they got sick, but it would have been a hell of a lot worse if they didn't get the vaccine. So point is, put all the anecdotes aside, all of them. I'm willing to do that if you're willing to do that. You have to look at the overall data, and the data is crystal clear. Uh, the vaccine is incredibly successful. And honestly, you can say it's the best thing that Trump ever did, Operation Warp Speed. Okay? So that's the first question. Now, the second question is the idea of a vaccine mandate. For purposes of this conversation, let's talk about the idea of a hard vaccine mandate. So in other words, you just have to get the vaccine. Um, the question there is, is the principle of the government forcing you to put something in your body okay? Now, there are some on the left who answer that with, yes. Um, my opinion is I'm much less comfortable on that front. Because if you say yes to that, I don't think people understand that establishes a precedent. And the precedent can be used and abused. And if you don't think the government is going to use and abuse it, well, I really don't know what to tell you because I think it's obvious that, you know, it has been used and abused in the past and it will be used and abused in the future. Now, having said that, I do think some people have, on the left have crossed the line from a healthy skepticism of governmental power into outright cynicism, where they won't even acknowledge that there are basic things that the government does right. And specifically when it comes to this COVID vaccine, just like when it comes to measles, mumps, rubella, polio, you name it, all the things we have vaccines for, this is an issue where they are actually correct that if you take the vaccine, you're going to be much better off. Now, again, the flip side of that is, well, the government also did the Tuskegee experiments. The government also lied us into a thousand different wars. The government also willy-nilly overthrows democratically elected governments and, and puts in puppet dictators. The government also has played with people's health and safety for an extended period of time. So you shouldn't have absolute trust of them. You should have a healthy skepticism. But look, don't let your skepticism become cynicism and you think, well, this vaccine must be a giant hoax and a scam and it must be nefarious because the government has done other nefarious things. So on the principle here, I'm not comfortable with the government being able to force everybody to put something in their body. Having said that, that's why my position has ultimately come down to uh, what I would refer to as a soft mandate. So in other words, instead of saying, you have to take the vaccine at the end of the conversation. I like the idea of saying, you don't want to take the vaccine? Fine, but then you have to test. Because again, this is an instance where we're dealing with a pandemic where there's over 720,000 Americans dead. Millions of people have had this thing. Millions of people have died worldwide. Um, you are doing a balancing act of the rights of the individual with the collective well-being. And there's no doubt that if everybody got the vaccine, the collective well-being would be far better off. So what do you do when you're on the left and you have this issue where we all care about individual rights, but we also care about the well-being of the community, and those two values are butting heads. They're butting heads. So how do you, how do you split that line? How do you, you know, find an answer that is satiating for both values? And again, that's why I fall in like the soft mandate area where we know this vaccine works, we know it's effective, but yeah, you have a right to refuse it but then I think you should have to test. So now let's get to Noam Chomsky. Um, I think his first comments there were actually completely reasonable. So he says, he says um, it's a mixed story when it comes to vaccine mandates. So in other words, he kind of sees both sides of it. My guess is simply because he knows you're balancing 
individual rights and liberty versus the collective good, um, then he says, no, you, you can't really force them to take it. Okay, I, I agree with that too. Then he says, well, we should insist on them being isolated. Now notice, he doesn't say that as in let's use governmental power to force them to be isolated. He goes on to say, I'm talking more about social convention. Uh, and quote, it's your right to refuse the vaccine, but it would be your responsibility to isolate yourself. So in other words, what he's saying is just social convention and culture. So in other words, if somebody doesn't get the vaccine, society should really look at that person and say, listen, in this instance, we have all the evidence we need. We know it works. You're just being really selfish in the sense that you're not getting the vaccine and you're making it less likely we get to herd immunity. And you're also making it so that, yeah, maybe you'll be fine if you take it and the data shows it's overwhelmingly likely you'll be okay if you get COVID. But, you know, maybe you pass it to grandma or grandpa or somebody, your obese mom or dad, and maybe they have three comorbidities and they don't make it and it's because of you. Like, are you okay with that? So uh, I actually think his first comments, they were completely reasonable. I see nothing wrong with his first comments there because he says very clearly, vaccine mandates are, quote, a mixed story. You can't really force them to. Uh, we should insist they be isolated, but don't do that with governmental power. You do it through social convention. Quote, it's your right to refuse the vaccine, but it should be your responsibility to isolate yourself. So in other words, if you're going to be a douchebag, uh, at least have the common decency to not, be, not put everybody else in massive danger. So if you're going to refuse the vaccine, do your best to isolate yourself as much as possible, socially distance, wear a mask, and things of that nature. I don't think there's anything wrong with those comments. Now, the next one, mm, some of the things he says I don't like. So he says, um, when, I think the main issue people have a problem with is, how can we get food to them? Quote, well, that's actually their problem. Now, he does go on to clarify and say, if they become destitute, you have to have some measure to ensure their survival. But I think people look at the second comment and they say, that's a little bit flippant about people who are not vaccinated and choosing not to get vaccinated. Quote, they should have the decency to remove themselves from the community. Again, that sort of echoes the first comments. But I think it's, it's how flippant he's being about them um, when he says, how do we get food to them? Well, that's actually their problem. People have an issue with that. On that, on that the criticism, I, I kind of agree because it does seem like, well, they can go fuck themselves. What, the question is, what do you do when push comes to shove and somebody really is like, no, I'm not going to fucking get the vaccine? Um, if somebody says, let's use governmental power to force them to isolate, to effectively segregate them from society, I do think that goes way too far. Um, the only thing I'd be okay with, and again, Chomsky mostly echoes this sentiment, is just through culture and social convention, Everybody should kind of be like, you're being a selfish douchebag here. And on that front, he'd be correct, because they just are being a selfish douchebag, and they just misread the evidence. So that's my overall breakdown of the situation. Is he being a little bit too flippant? Yes. Um, but listen, I also have to be honest with you guys. I'm happy that there are some people out there who are kind of uncompromising in telling people, get the vaccine, you fucking moron. Um, you know, Charles Barkley said, we covered the story where Charles Barkley was basically ranting at Kyrie Irving and saying... Uh, this is about your family, this is about your teammates, this is about your community, this isn't just about you. And you're not some hero, you're not like Muhammad Ali, you're, you know, you're a selfish prick, basically. Now, again, I don't agree with just flat out forcing people to get the vaccine, hard mandate, end of conversation. Um, but I like the fact that there are people who are driving that hard line and saying, you don't understand, you're just wrong about this, so do the right thing. I like that. Having said that, it's not necessarily my style, and as you guys know, I can't shake my my principled objection here 
where even though I know it's the right thing to get the vaccine, even though I know you should get the vaccine, even though I know it works, um, the principle of the government being able to force you to put something in your body is something I'm not comfortable with. So I always fall in the same place when it comes to this, which is the idea of either vaccinate or get regular tests. Um, Now, it does get even more murky, though, when you talk about this issue, because we're not even talking about, like, at a workplace, for example, where they kind of have the authority to say, oh, you're not vaccinated, fine, get the test. Uh, This is more in society more generally, where if you don't get vaccinated, you know, what is there going to be, a government agent that comes and knocks on your door every morning and says, here, take your test for the day? That's not going to happen. And that would also be a little weird, too. So then what do you do? I mean... I don't know. I don't have the answer there. I really don't have the answer. Um, But Chomsky's correct that the vaccine works. Chomsky's correct that you should get it. I understand the sentiment of being kind of flippant and being pissed off that some people aren't getting the vaccine. But uh, I would definitely pull up short of using governmental power to force them to or to force them to isolate. They should just not be douchebags and should isolate on their own, which I guess that's in the first video. That's kind of what he's saying in the second video. Perhaps he crosses the line a little bit. But uh, that's where I fall on this. Now, I will say, the final point I'll make on this is um, there's a lot of misinformation out there about what's going on with the vaccine globally. Let me tell you what the real scandal is. And again, if you watch this show, you probably already know this. The real scandal is that we're not lifting the patent protections for big pharma when it comes to this vaccine. And that is literally genocidal for the developing world. It's absolutely genocidal. So in other words, uh, Moderna, Pfizer, even Johnson & Johnson, and even AstraZeneca, that's the UK version of the vaccine, uh, when you look at the patents, basically what that means is they have the formula, they have the recipe, and they can choose to not release it to anybody, and they could just make the vaccines themselves, and they can effectively hoard all the profits. And believe you me, they're making billions in profits. And if they were, to lift these patent protections, what would happen as a result of that? There are facilities all around the world that are ready to make these vaccines in bulk. And if you do that, you'll be able to get billions more vaccines out to people in the developing world. Well, guess what? The pharma companies in the U.S., the U.S. government, and other uh, industrial world governments have turned around and said, we're not lifting the patent protections. So now you have some places like in Africa, they're trying to reverse engineer this uh, recipe for the vaccine, which of course drags out, takes more time. The longer it takes to get jabs into arms, the more people are gonna die from COVID. So to not lift those patent protections to protect pharma profits, it is literally a genocidal policy. And that's what's going on right now, right now. So there's your scandal. Uh, The other thing is, Bill Gates famously stepped in early on and said, don't you dare lift those patent protections. We're going to provide vaccines to the rest of the world through COVAX, which is his charity. Well, guess what? COVAX has only gotten out a little over 200 million vaccines. When you need over a billion, you need billions of vaccines for the developing world. Billions of vaccines. And you deliver just over 200 million? It's been a colossal failure. We know it's a colossal failure. You can't do this through charity. And people are literally dying for the vaccine, and there's a massive demand for the vaccine. But now there's misinformation out there where people are saying, no, people are actually choosing in the developing world not to get the vaccine. The percentage of vaccine hesitancy 
in the developing world is about the same as the percentage in the United States, which means a solid majority in the developing world, 60, 70%, want to get that vaccine. In fact, we know the number of uh, the percentage of people who are vaccine hesitant is between 4% and at the absolute max, 38% in the developing world, which means you have a strong majority who are like, I want the vaccine, and they can't get it because of the patent protections for big pharma and the fact that they're shielding it from the developing world, which means people will die as a result of it. That's the real scandal. That's the real scandal. You have this weird, cockamimi, insane conspiracy out there that the scandal is actually the opposite, that you know, the vaccines are damaging and hurtful, and um, it's this mass campaign to inflict harm on people, or the vaccines do absolutely nothing, and they just want the profits when the vaccine does nothing. No, the real scandal is we have a safe and effective vaccine that works phenomenally well, and we're shielding it from the rest of the world. We won't lift those patent protections. So people have, they understand that there's big pharma greed, but they sort of flipped what the conspiracy is. The conspiracy is they're keeping those patent protections in place. And Bill Gates is a charlatan and a con man and a fraud who's pretending like he can fix it all through charity, which is bullshit. So Bill Gates has blood on his hands. The executives at Pfizer and Moderna have blood on their hands. Biden has blood on his hands. And Merkel Merkel and a lot of the other world leaders have blood on their hands. That's the real problem here. So anyway, I'm way off topic now, but bottom line is uh, Noam Chomsky uh, was a little flippant, but especially in that first clip, I think he's largely correct. He's basically saying it's a mixed story. You can't really force people to get the vaccines, but through social convention, they should probably be isolated. It's your right to refuse the vaccine, but it's your responsibility to isolate yourself if you don't do it. I kind of agree with that. Uh, The only thing that I think goes a little too far is when he says, how can we get uh, food to them? Well, that's actually their problem. Mm, No, no. That's far too close to like, let's literally segregate unvaccinated people. Um, But at least he does correct himself a little bit after that and say, if they become destitute, you have to have some measure to ensure their survival. Well, yeah, yeah. So maybe don't be as flippant as you've been here. But again, my, my bias is that even though this isn't me, I'm kind of sympathetic to people who are driving an even harder bargain and saying, hey, jackass, you're being a jackass, so do the right thing. I think you should do the right thing, but if you don't, I'm fine with uh, routine testing. Okay, next. Barack Obama is back. He's out there giving speeches for Democrats. He's campaigning for New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy. Um, And really what he did here, in my opinion, is give the worst speech of his life by far. By far. Because Barack Obama of 2008 and Barack Obama of 2012, when he was campaigning for himself, the rhetoric was, the sky's the limit. Um, I know the system seems like it's unchangeable, but we have to change it. We don't have a choice. Uh, let's really go to the root of all of our problems and, and make it better. And what you're going to notice here is he doesn't even have that particular line of bullshit anymore. He's up front. He's saying, like, don't expect too much. So 
I got a lot to say about this. Take a look. I, I, I know why sometimes folks just get tired, and, and maybe they say, ah, oh, you know, I'm not going to bother voting this time. But here's the thing, we can't afford to be tired. I remember in 2016, folks said, oh, you know, I'm not inspired. You know, I, I, Obama was okay, but we didn't get everything I wanted, so I'm just going to sit in next time. And, you know, y'all know how that turned out. That's what happens when you're not paying attention. That's what happens when you become complacent or you let your frustration lead to inaction. We cannot afford to be tired because of the young people here and the ones who are coming. I know it's hard. Phil doesn't claim he's going to solve every problem in New Jersey right away. I didn't solve every problem when I was president. But the fact is that as hard as it is, we can still make it better. It's hard to undo the legacy of discrimination that goes back centuries, but we can make it better. It's hard to deal with special interests who want to keep the status quo when you're trying to make the economy more fair and just, but you can make it better. It's hard in a big country where people disagree to get everybody moving in the same direction, but we can do better than we're doing. We really can. We can make it better. And when you've got the right person in the job, we might not get every single person employed, but we can get more people more jobs. We may not get every child the best education in the world right here in Newark. We can give a lot more kids a better education here in Newark. I didn't get every American health care, but boy, we got a whole lot more people in America. It makes a difference when we decide to make things better. When you've got somebody in your corner who's shown you that they will work for you, who has a track record of accomplishment, you got to go out there and work for them. you got to go out there and work for them. That is ultimately my gripe with this speech, is that when you're campaigning, it is absolute lunacy to not say the opposite thing. Oh, I'm going to work as hard as I can for you, and I'm going to do it on every single front. Your pitch to voters while you're campaigning is, you got to do more shit for me. Like, why are you being lazy? Get up off your ass. Help me. What's the matter with you guys? There's a sense of entitlement there. There's this idea that Democratic politicians can't fail the people. Only the people can fail Democratic politicians. So what's your problem? What's the matter with you guys? Get up. Up and at them. Go do something. Go help me. You have to earn that level of entitlement. You have to earn the right to tell people, I've delivered in so many ways, so you would be insane not to do this. And fact of the matter is, he didn't do that. He didn't deliver like that. So let's go through a lot of what he said here. Um, you'll see, you'll notice the theme. The theme is, I'm going to blame you guys. It's never on us. I mean, the gist of this is, you guys can't be upset just because we suck and just because we perpetually underdeliver. That's the gist of it. Okay, so... He says, I remember in 2016, folks said, I'm not inspired. So, and you guys know how that happens, so you better go out and vote. Okay, former President Obama, 
Whose fault is that? When you say, oh, in 2016, you guys weren't inspired. Are you really putting that on the people for not sucking it up and going out and voting? Your only takeaway from that should be, man, Hillary ran a terrible campaign. She couldn't even beat this monster, joke, clown boy of a human, Donald Trump. But he's not saying that. He's not saying, damn, didn't Hillary really botch that by not making a good case for herself? No, he's saying it's your fault for not sucking it up and going to do it. I don't know how anybody thinks this is persuasive or that this can work. It's incredibly condescending and pedantic. Uh, He says, well, yeah, we didn't get everything we want. The problem is not that we didn't get everything we want. The problem is that we virtually didn't get anything we want. For example, his signature accomplishment, uh, and he he goes on to bring this up, um, Obamacare. That was a right-wing plan. It literally came from the Heritage Foundation. That was the answer to the left-wing proposal of a single-payer system. The idea was, let's keep these rapacious, mafia-like, for-profit insurance companies in charge. They could keep price gouging you, but I'm just going to force you to go buy from them. And he says, well, we didn't get everybody coverage, but we got a lot more people coverage. But that nobody was asking for that. Nobody was asking for that kind of a reform, except previously Newt Gingrich and Chuck Grassley and a bunch of Republicans. So it, the issue is not that, well, we didn't get everything we want. You could say that if we got a public option. Okay, we didn't get everything we want. We got a public option. But you know what? That is a giant step in the right direction. But to do a right-wing health care reform, you could argue that we didn't get anything we wanted there. We just got the priorities of the opponents implemented. And that was the problem with Bill Clinton, too. His biggest accomplishments were what? Welfare reform, gutted welfare. I was, nobody on the left was asking for that. That's the opposite of what we want. Um, the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act, which is the repeal of Glass-Steagall. Nobody was asking for that. That made the country way worse. It's not that, hey, we didn't get everything we wanted. It's that we got the opposite of what we wanted. He says, um, this is amazing. While campaigning, Phil doesn't claim he's going to solve every problem. I didn't solve every problem. Well, what an inspiring message. Thank you. You're going into this thing. Guys, don't get your hopes up too much. Guys, don't feel down because we can't deliver on Dickie McGee's ex. How is this? How is this inspiring? How is this going to get people out to vote? This is the most pathetic thing I've ever heard. And the fact of the matter is, he has so thoroughly internalized the values of the corrupt and broken system, he doesn't even realize that he sounds like a moron when he does this. I mean, this is truly moronic. I mean, even Trump, when he goes out there, doesn't say shit like this. Now, granted, Trump's entire agenda is monstrous. But when he goes out there, he knows you've got to play to the crowd. Barack Obama's like, his whole point of, the whole point of his thumb speech here is, I'm not really going to play to you guys. I'm going to say it's on you. We're entitled to your support. Sure, we're not going to deliver, but go vote anyway. And then, uh, you know, the other point is, he says, well, it's hard to deal with special interests. And this is the crux of the problem. Because it's not that it's hard to deal with them. It's that you didn't even try to deal with them. What you did is, you accepted as a precondition of the situation that they're going to be a voice in the room. And then you perpetually tried to split the difference between something that is nominally decent and what the donors want. And that's how we got the entire Barack Obama presidency. 
the original argument was, I'm not here to play the same old game. I'm here to change the game. He said that in one of his original ads. And then now it's, well, it's hard to deal with special interest. So what am I going to do? You didn't even try to deal with special interest. You didn't do any campaign finance reform. You didn't touch that issue with a 10-foot pole. You allowed the special interest into the room and then treated their voices like they're legitimate as opposed to what they are, a, a corrupting influence on the system where they rig the system through legalized bribes and they end up always getting what they want at the expense of what the American people want. I mean, this is really something, guys. This is really something. He now is at the point where he can't even pretend to be a politician who's going to solve problems. His strongest pitch to you is, I'm not going to give you everything you want. I'm not going to solve every problem. And here's the main point, guys. The only way that people don't get everything they want, but they get some of what they want, is if you have a fighter who's relentlessly fighting for everything you want. This is basic stuff. This is negotiation 101. You have to go in there like a bull in a china shop and say, I'm uncompromising. I'm going to get people exactly what they want. That's the whole point of democracy. I'm going to get people Medicare for all, free college, a living wage, an end to the wars, a Green New Deal. The list goes on and on. You have to be uncompromising on all of those fronts to then even get half of those things. So in other words, you have to push relentlessly, just to give a random example here, you have to push relentlessly for like a $20 minimum wage to even get a $15 minimum wage. And you guys know this if you've been following politics for a long time. You have to ruthlessly rep a hardcore position to get a compromise that's even half decent. But Barack Obama up front is like, relax, guys. We're not going to get you everything you want. Take it easy. We're better than the other guys, but we're entitled to your vote, so shut up and do it. I mean, it's a joke. And the final thing is this, and we're going to bring this up in a, in a segment later as well, which is just as important. But did you guys know that in 1938, um, this is in, in the midst of, uh, you know, FDR's time in office, started in, I think, 1933. Um, in 1938, Democrats controlled 80% of the House of Representatives and 80% of the Senate. FDR was so popular, Americans voted for the same guy four times. This was before we had term limits. What happened is Republicans realized we're never going to be able to beat these people unless we do term limits. And then they put term limits into place. So what's the fact you take away from that? Americans got a little taste of social democracy, just a little taste. And they creamed themselves and they were like, I want this forever. And so you had 80% Democrats in the House, 80% Democrats in the Senate, and a, a president who won four elections. Compare that reality with what we're told today. Today we're told, what are you going to do? You know, the country's roughly 50-50. The elections are going to keep going back and forth. That's just the nature of the way it works. That's only the nature of the way it works if you're not materially delivering to improve people's lives. And that's my message to Barack Obama. This bullshit entitled, we're not going to get you what you want. Nobody's inspired by that. Nobody's going to get out and vote for that. And by the way, you didn't deliver on stuff people wanted. 
So yeah, of course you're going to have the pendulum effect. Of course you're going to have close elections. Of course it's going to go back and forth because people go, well, I hate these people. Let me vote for these people. I hate these people too. Let me go back to this person. Well, now I hate these people again too. So let me go back to this person. And that's what happens. It's the backlash effect. Every election, every election, it's the lesser of two evils thing. Every election, it's let's just go with the opposite of what we have now because what we have now sucks. But if you actually provide people material well-being and do the right thing, you can win with colossal majorities. But they act like that's not even possible. Because at this point, they don't even know that that's possible. Their takeaway is just lazily like, well, the country's brainwashed because of Fox News and, you know, all, all these right-wingers and because half the country are just bad people. Like, that's their mindset. Well, no. Have you considered that maybe if you materially deliver for people, you actually will chip away big time at the block on the other side? Because you will, because history proves that. A joke. It's a joke. Worst speech he's ever given by far. The longer he's out of office, the more out of touch he is. Remember the first time he was in the news after his presidency? What was it? He was given a, I think it was a $400,000 speech to Wall Street. That was the very first time he was in the news when he left his presidency. Why would Wall Street give him that money? They're paying him back for when he bailed them out with no strings attached. That's what that was. You served us, now we're going to serve you. Barack Obama is of, by, and for the system. And he's part of the problem. This perpetual, aim-low culture of the Democrats. Because also, by the way, they're bought by big money too. It's not just the Republicans. Worst speech of his life. Barack Obama in 08 and Barack Obama of 2012 at least knew to pretend. At least knew to pretend. Now, he doesn't even have that in him. All right, next. So Brianna Joy Gray pressed Ro Khanna on Joe Biden's failures. This is a really interesting clip. Let's take a look and then I'll respond. What I don't think is legitimate is to say, well, you know, the, the Biden doesn't care about delivering for working families because he when I now met with him a, a, a number of times, I think he's very sincere that he wants he wants that three point five trillion bill to pass. That's a bit of a straw man, um, Representative, if I may, because I, I certainly didn't say Biden doesn't care about working families. I don't really care what's in Joe Biden's heart. I care what he does, and if his actions well, don't reflect his actions, I think he's fighting for it. I mean, he, you know, there's a. I do think there's a limit to a, uh, an American president power in a 50-50 Senate. But you just the, talked about what he could do by executive order, and there's no rationale for why he refuses to do those things he could do by executive order. Donald Trump also didn't have super majorities in Congress, but managed to do quite a bit that there was a lot of hand-wringing about, meaningfully so, reasonably so, because he was able to do them by executive order. Why isn't Joe Biden doing the same? I agree with you on the, on the executive order of student loans. I mean, that I that I agree that he, he should do. I guess the point is uh, to look at the things that he has. I mean, he did do an executive order of $15 for federal partners. He uh, is pushing very strongly and will get, in my view, universal preschool, child care, uh, will get a massive investments in solar and wind. Uh, so I'm not saying that he's got a perfect scoreboard. And certainly, you know, I was for Bernie Sanders becoming president. But in the context of uh, his presidency, I think he has been more progressive than many of us expected of their disappointments, like student loans. But it seems to me that he really had his heart and soul in this fight for $3.5 trillion and has tried in many different ways. 
and is really getting uh, is genuinely stuck with, with uh, the resistance of cinema in particular. I think Dan should actually would have come on board, but cinema gives him cover. Is it Kristen Cinema's fault? that we don't have student debt cancellation, immigration reform, marijuana legalization, or any of the other things that Joe Biden could do by executive order? So there's two separate conversations going on here. One of them is how badly, if at all, does Biden want that $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill to pass? That's one of the conversations. The other conversation is um, here are the things that Joe Biden can do through executive order. Why isn't he doing them? And I think I have answers for both of these things. On the $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill, does Joe Biden want it to pass? Based on everything I've seen to this point, my answer is, I don't think he really cares if the price tag is $3.5 trillion or not. In fact, he might prefer a much smaller package. He might prefer a $1 trillion or $1.5 trillion package. Because, you know, that is more in line with his politics throughout his entire career. You know, Mr. I'm the grand bipartisan type and I like to meet people halfway. And in this instance, if the Republicans are, have their middle finger up the entire time and they say we have no interest about any of this other than the original $1 trillion or so uh, infrastructure package. But on this uh, reconciliation package, I think Biden does fancy himself more the Manchin type of Democrat or the cinema type of Democrat than a Bernie Sanders type of Democrat. I don't think uh, in his heart of hearts that Biden is as conservative as Joe Manchin or Kirsten Sinema. I mean, Joe Manchin voted like 50 or 60 percent of the time with Donald Trump under Donald Trump. Um, Biden's not that conservative, but which on which side does he lean? Is he closer to Bernie or is he closer to Manchin on the spectrum? I think he leans a little more in the direction of Manchin. So if he got all Democratic senators on board for the three point five trillion dollar bill, would he sign it? Yes, I think he would. Um, but how hard is he going to fight? How hard is he going to go to the mat for the $3.5 trillion bill? I mean, I think we have our answer. He's not going to fight that hard. Now, you could say, well, Kyle, you don't know what's going on behind the scenes, so how can you conclude that? I mean, it's actually really simple. If he wanted it, there would have been movement in his direction, and there hasn't been. Every time we get you know, one of these reports on what's going on behind the scenes, the price tag comes down and down and down and down, and we lose more things and more things and more things. Now, beyond that, clearly behind the scenes, whatever tactic he's using to try to get Manchin and Cinema on board, maybe the other seven or eight Democrats who might be skeptical of it, whatever tactics he's using, even if you grant him that he wants the $3.5 trillion bill, it's not working. It's not working. It's failing miserably. But then the other point is, At some point, at some point, you would have a significant degree of public pressure being put on these other Democrats led by Joe Biden if he wanted this bill. He would use the bully pulpit. That's what you have as the president. You have the bully pulpit. You would have rallies in West Virginia, you know, shit, invite union leaders to to push for the $3.5 trillion bill, list the provision, put real pressure on them. Be strategic, be tactical, be intelligent, fight in a reasonable way. We've seen none of those things, none of those things. So there's no real public pressure from Biden against the holdouts. uh, And there's no reports of behind the scenes him playing the right political games. So in other words, if he did the carrot or stick approach, we would have had movement in Biden's direction. But there hasn't been movement in Biden's direction. So he hasn't, my guess is he hasn't given them an offer they can't refuse. 
the idea I keep going back to is you can tell Joe Manchin, look, man, uh, if you don't vote for this bill, Merrick Garland's going to look into your family because we know about the EpiPen price gouging scandal that your daughter was involved in. And we have her on email dead to rights, basically saying we're going to price gouge people with this stuff. That's illegal. She can go to jail. You want your daughter to go to jail? I don't want your daughter to go to jail. But Merrick Garland's going to look into it because there is a violation of the law here. So I don't know what you want me to say. Now, if you do the right thing and you vote for the bill, not only will we not look into your daughter, but you'll also get another military base in West Virginia. You'll get X amount more infrastructure money. You can have a position in my administration or family member can have a position in my administration. It's an offer you can't refuse. It's I'm your best friend or I'm your worst enemy. You choose. Really between a rock and a hard place if you go after him like that now, isn't he? But he's not going to do that. He didn't do that. Then there's no way he's going to do that. So now he's at the whim. He literally said the other day, when I have as a slim majority as I have, every Democratic senator is the president. Well, clearly not, because Bernie Sanders ain't the president, because if that was the case, we would have already had this $3.5 trillion bill passed. It would have been a $6 trillion bill. So it's not that every Democratic senator is the president. It's that Manchin and Cinema are the president. And whatever they say, you go, yes, sir, and yes, ma'am. So it, there's your answer on that front. Would he sign it if it got to his desk? I'm sure he'd sign the $3.5 trillion bill if it got to his desk. But it's not getting to his desk. So then the question is, how are you going to fight for it? And the answer is, he's not going to fight for it in an effective way at all, or he's not going to fight for it at all. And he really just can't wait to get it down to $1.5 trillion, And then he can't wait to browbeat the progressives to fall in line and vote for it. Well, my message to the progressives is, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. And then the other question is that Brianna keeps bringing up here is, how much is Biden committed to uh, these executive orders that he could do? Now, just to give you guys an idea of what Joe Biden could do today with the stroke of a pen, he could free every nonviolent drug offender, every federal nonviolent drug offender. He could free them all today. He could abolish all student debt. He could do it today. He could effectively legalize marijuana by taking it off the scheduled substances list. Not doing that. He's not even lowering the, the uh, ranking of it. He's not even saying it's not a Schedule 1, let's make it a Schedule 3 or whatever. He's not even doing that. Um, he could also pull out of Iraq. He could pull out of Syria. He could stop indiscriminate drone bombings. He could give everyone health care with the swipe of a pen. There's a great article from David Dayen about how there's a provision in Obamacare that allows you, in emergency situations, basically do single payer. He could do that and say COVID is an emergency. We're going to give everybody health care. He hasn't done that. So if anything, the power of the president, it's not that it's overstated. It's that it's understated. You can do so much if you have a president who actually gives a shit and cares and is willing to use his power. And on that front, uh, Ro Khanna even admits this, I think Brianna and I would have disagreements with Ro as to how bad Joe Biden wants the $3.5 trillion package. I don't think he cares that much. Um, but on this one, we all seem to be in agreement. All these things he could do through executive order, he's not doing. Why? He doesn't agree with them. Which brings me full circle to the original point, which is, I think on the spectrum between a Manchin-type Democrat or a Bernie-type Democrat, Biden is closer to a Manchin-type Democrat. I'm not going to tell you he's exactly the same as a Manchin-type Democrat, because a Manchin-type Democrat wouldn't have signed the $15 minimum wage executive order for all federal employees and contractors like Biden did. I don't think Manchin would have signed right to repair like Biden did. I don't think Manchin would have pulled out of Afghanistan like Biden did. So I'm not going to wage a war on nuance and say, he's exactly like Manchin. That's not just not true. So I'm not going to say it. I do think he's closer to a Manchin type than he is to a Bernie type, and I think that's relatively obvious. So, um, but look, we're going to talk more about this in the future. Is there an out for House progressives if 
they get fed a heaping pile of dog shit with this reconciliation package, some $1.5 trillion bill with almost nothing on climate, nothing punitive on fossil fuel companies. Uh, is there a way out for progressives to actually win in the negotiation, even though they would be caught dead to rights and seem like they lost terribly? More on that in the future. There's an interesting thing. There's an interesting um, chess move that can be pulled, but we'll talk about that in the future. Uh, but credit to Brianna Joy Gray for uh, holding Ro Khanna accountable. Credit to Ro Khanna for taking the tough questions. fact of the matter is Biden doesn't care all that much about this bill in its totality, and he clearly doesn't agree with any of the executive orders he could do, which is very damning because we're in a transformational moment in American history, and we have a status quo president for the most part. Now let's continue. I'm going to do the Elon Musk story. Elon Musk is in the news um, for an amazing reason. Let me show you this here. So let's start on the right. Judd Legum says, oh, no, Elon Musk, who is worth $229 billion and made $36 billion in one day this week, doesn't like the idea of taxing billionaires. Musk paid zero income tax in 2018. So, uh, you know what, I'll read that whole thing for you, but first just look at Elon's response on the bottom left. So this guy says, here's how you can write to your legislators and say, oppose this new billionaire's tax that's being floated as part of the reconciliation package. Musk responds, exactly. Eventually, they run out of other people's money, and then they come for you. So the point that Elon is making is, yeah, you shouldn't support a billionaire's tax because eventually that'll hit the person who's making middle-class wages. Let me explain to you why that's absurd. When billionaires aren't paying more in taxes, who's picking up the flack? The working class. So it's actually exactly backwards. It's exactly backwards. You want the wealthy to pay more so you can ease the tax burden on the working class. It's called a progressive tax rate. Every developed country has that. Now, unfortunately, in the United States, um, because of specifically the 2017 Republican and Trump tax cut bill, for the first time in history, you had the working class paying a higher effective rate than billionaires. So we have a regressive tax system in this country in some respects. In some ways, it's not even just a flat tax system. It's a regressive tax system. If you uh, earn a salary, if, if you earn a wage for a living, you pay higher taxes than some of the wealthiest people in the country. For example, the capital gains rate, which is the money that you make on investments, that rate at about 20% is lower than if you're some construction worker and you make like eighty dollars or $90,000 a year. You can pay more working a, a normal job, getting a normal salary. You can pay more in taxes than somebody who sits on their ass all day and lets their money make money for a living. So you have basically professional gamblers in the stock market paying less in taxes than people who bust their ass all day every day. And don't even get me into, you know, the army of accountants and lawyers and experts and specialists who work for the ultra-wealthy to find legal loopholes so they pay nothing in taxes. So I will, uh, let me just read a little bit of this for you. Um, dear Senator or Congress, or Congress member's name, so this is just a you know, template of what you can write to oppose the billionaire's tax. Uh, I expect you to oppose the widened proposal to tax unrealized capital gains. Although the proposal targets billionaires and not myself, 
the government of elected representatives have a track record of, what does that say? Scope creep when writing new taxes. I'm not even going to read the rest of it. On that alone, it's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Um, the argument is literally, I'm not opposed to taxing billionaires in principle. The real thing I'm concerned about is the tax increases are going to trickle down to regular people. Which again, as we established, the exact opposite of it is true. When billionaires pay next to nothing in taxes, who picks up the difference? The working class. That's exactly what's happening in this country. So they, get the, they, they flip it exactly on its head. And understand something, guys. Everything I've said to this point, I'm not giving anything theoretical. The argument they're making is theoretical. Hey, if this happens, maybe this will happen. No, no, no. I'm just pointing out the empirical, historical reality. Don't take my word for it. Go, go look at it. Go look at the numbers. We've covered the articles on this show endlessly about this exact topic. Okay. Um, so now let's talk a little bit about the Elon Musk thing. There was a big expose in ProPublica recently. Now, Judd Legum points out here, as Musk is out there decrying increasing taxes on billionaires, Musk paid zero in income tax in 2018. Now, you might be saying, well, how the hell is that possible? How is that even legal? Well, there's actually a, a well-developed strategy that's used by billionaires on this front. So what very wealthy people do, they go to a bank and they borrow against their stock for their living expenses. And that's oftentimes cheaper than selling stock and paying taxes on it. So the strategy is called buy, borrow, and die. It's an actual strategy to preserve wealth if you're mega wealthy. So when you die, all of those unrealized, never taxed capital gains are wiped off the books for your heirs. So do you understand that? You never take money out. You go to a bank and borrow against your stock, and then you never have to pay taxes. It's a giant scam. It's a giant loophole. Anybody who looks at this with a sober, reasonable mind realizes these people are giant tax cheats. They're tax cheats. Now, you're earning a, a regular wage, and you're paying your taxes, and you feel like a sucker. They get to legally dodge all these taxes with these clear scam loopholes that are put in there because the wealthy have bought the government. That's the reality. So just to give you guys uh, more of an understanding of just how bad it is, the wealthiest people in the country pay next to nothing in taxes. So the true tax rate for Warren Buffett, for example, point. One, zero percent. How about Jeff Bezos? 0.98 percent. Michael Bloomberg? 1.30 percent. How about Elon Musk in the long term? So not just in 2018, but over like a five or ten year period. His true tax rate was 3.27 percent. So, hey, credit to Elon. He paid a little bit more than a lot of the other douchebags who are billionaires who rigged the rules. Good on you, man. But what happened is I think Elon finally figured out in like 2018, oh, I could pay nothing. Let me just do this Weasley trick, which is technically legal, which clearly shouldn't be legal. So understand, guys, dude made, he had the largest wealth increase in a single day in history. He, he made $36 billion in one day. And either on the same day or the day after, he's on Twitter saying, don't tax me more because I'm worried about, uh, you know, random 
Joe Schmo, who makes 60 k a year, having to pay more in taxes if you tax me more. Come on, son. $36 billion in one day? And, and you say, don't you dare raise taxes on me? The market cap for Tesla went over a trillion, a trillion. They, it made Elon Musk the richest person, not just in the world, in human history. And on the same day, he's like, don't raise my taxes. Don't raise my taxes. There was an article recently for, with 2% of Elon Musk's wealth, you can eliminate world hunger. Did you know that um, nearly 50% of the world population lives on less than $5.50 per day? Homeboy just made $36 billion in one day, and he's like, don't you dare raise my taxes even a little bit. I mean, it's a joke. It's an absolute joke. So to give you guys a little bit more information, um, a report came out the other day from the Institute for Policy Studies. America's billionaires... Their wealth has grown $2.1 trillion during the pandemic. So that's uh, collectively their wealth has skyrocketed by 70%. And at the same time, 89 million Americans have lost their jobs. Now, beyond that, there was a report from a few years back uh, that I want to share with you guys. And I, bring, I brought this up before, but I feel like it's totally pertinent to the conversation we're having now. The top 1% of Americans have taken $50 trillion from the bottom 90%. So this is from 2018. Take a look. This is in Time Magazine. Groundbreaking new working paper by Carter C. Price and Catherine Edwards of the Rand Corporation had, had the more equitable income distributions of the three decades following World War II, 1945 through 1974, merely held steady. The aggregate annual income of Americans earning below the 90th percentile would have been $2.5 trillion higher in the year 2018 alone, that is an amount equal to nearly 12% of GDP, enough to more than double median income, enough to pay every single working American in the bottom nine deciles an additional $1,144 a month, every month, every single year. Price and Edwards calculate that the cumulative tab for our four-decade-long experiment in radical inequality had grown to over $47 trillion from 1975 through 2018. At a recent pace of about $2.5 trillion a year, that number, we estimate, crossed the $50 trillion mark by early 2020. That's $50 trillion that would have gone into the paychecks of working Americans at inequality held constant, $50 trillion that would have built a far larger and more prosperous economy, $50 trillion that would have enabled the vast majority of Americans to enter this pandemic far more healthy, resilient, and financially secure. Do you understand what's being said? If you look at the income inequality, the wealth inequality, the, the pay ratio, the wealth ratio between the top 10% and the bottom 90% in what's called the golden age of economic expansion in the U.S. when we were the only game in town. So from after World War II all the way until 1975. If you just keep the pay discrepancy and the wealth discrepancy steady from then until today, every single American in the bottom 90% has $1,145, excuse me, $1,144 more per month, every month, every year of your life. So effectively, because the rules have been rigged, because the wealthy and corporations have bought the government and rigged the rules in their favor in a variety of different ways, because the rules have been rigged, the top 10% has taken 50 trillion, now it's like 51 or 52 trillion for 2021, from the bottom 90%.
Do, need I say any more? Need I say any more? We live in a time of such amazing income and wealth inequality that it's beyond the gilded age. And Elon Musk is on Twitter saying, don't tax me more, even though I just made $36 billion in one day, and the market cap for Tesla is over $1 trillion because Hertz decided to buy a bunch of Teslas. It's a, it's a sick joke, man. It's a sick joke. Imagine the selfishness and the greed to get you as a billionaire to make that case. And for the average person to side with Musk on this, imagine the years and years of Kool-Aid drinking and ideological brainwashing that gets you to the point that you're against the most common sense idea of all, which is, yes, redistribution of wealth. Nobody's talking about redistributing so everybody gets exactly the same amount. Nobody ever said that. Nobody would argue for that. If they did, they'd be insane. But should we live in a country where 30 million people don't have health care? Should we live in a country where medical bills are the top cause of bankruptcy and 45,000 45, people die every year because they don't have basic health care? Should we live in a country where 78% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck? Half of working people make $30,000 a year or less? Should we live in a country with over $1.7 trillion in student loan debt? Should we live in that country? At the same time, just a handful of people are getting this wealthy? No. I think you know the answer to that. You need redistributive policies. You need to tax the wealthy. You need to provide people with the basics. You know, uh, universal education, including higher education, college, uh, universal daycare, universal health care, a living wage, unions. Something's got to be done to fight back against this because this is as extreme as it gets. Okay. Let's take a break. When we come back, uh, Biden virtue signals about unions but does nothing to help the strikes. Stay right there, y'all. We'll be right back.
will be a chart. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back to the show. We have a show. <laughs> I think you know that. All right, let's talk about Biden and what he's doing with the unions. <clears throat> Let me pull up his quote. He's got a quote over here somewhere. Where are we at? Where are we at? So Joe Biden uh, delivered some comments on his Build Back Better plan. And um, during it, he said the following, quote, I'm a union president. Someone calculated I used the word union more than the last seven presidents combined. Okay, so I hear that, and what's my reaction? Good, good, but do you have the policy chops to back it up? So in other words, what are you pushing for substantively to back unions? Now, the answer is the PRO Act was proposed, but it ain't going to pass unless you do it through reconciliation. Parts of it were in the Build Back Better bill, but it got stripped. Like all the PRO Act provisions, either most or all of them, I think all of them, but don't quote me on that. It might be most of them. Uh, it's been stripped. And now, the PRO Act would be phenomenal for unions. I, honestly, I, I think it's fair to say that if we got the PRO Act passed, that would be better for workers than even a living wage because that really shifts the balance of power, basically bans right-to-work laws amid a num- uh, among a number of other things makes it way easier to form a union, and in the long run, that has more upsides for the working class than even the living wage. Uh, So it was proposed, but it was stripped out, and Biden hasn't fought for it. So what does he lean on? Well, I said the word union a lot. Okay, Joe. Uh, Well, great work here from More Perfect Union. Um, You're going to see Jonah Furman, who's a labor reporter, breaking down um, the history of pro-union presidents. So Biden thinks that he's the most pro-union president. Nonsense. You're going to see what actual pro-union presidents have done, and then we'll come back and tell you uh, exactly what Biden can do. Now, by the way, quick side note, this guy Jonah Furman, who's in this video on More Perfect Union, check out the last episode of Crystal Kyle and Friends, because we interviewed him Uh, about the John Deere strike, which is currently happening right now. It's a phenomenally informative interview. And then you also have all, like, the wave of strikes, all the other strikes. We sort of comment on a variety of them. So definitely check that out. It's very informative, very substantive. And, um, you know, it's important to have the more substantive of the interviews do well and not just, you know, the more spicy and non-substantive ones. So anyway, take a look at that, Crystal Kyle and Friends. You can subscribe on Substack for free and get the audio version. You can subscribe for $5 and get the video version. Um, or you could just go to whatever your favorite podcast platform is and pull up the latest Crystal Kyle and Friends episode. Anyway, um, here's the breakdown of pro-union presidents and where Biden falls. President Biden is eager to be the most pro-union president in American history. You know, you've heard me uh, say many times, I intend to be the most pro-union president, maybe the most pro-union administration in American history. Here's one important way that the president can show up for labor, by getting involved in labor strikes on the side of workers. In recent history, presidents have refused to speak out in favor of workers who are engaged in an ongoing labor dispute. The president, as I think you just heard from me, 
has not expressed any opinion or made any assessment about this particular incident. The Biden White House has continued this modern practice of abstention. As a policy and for legal reasons, we don't weigh in on individual labor disputes. I'm not going to get into negotiations, but my message is if you think that's what you need, then you don't do it. To be fair, workers should be leading the way on letting the company know what they need for a fair deal. When negotiations break down, however, and workers are out on the picket line against corporate greed, it's in the public interest for the administration to ensure a work stoppage is addressed in a way that respects working people. If Biden wants to become the most pro-union president in American history, he needs to change the norms and retain the option to get involved if he so chooses, especially when workers are on a prolonged strike. Coal miners at Alabama's Warrior Met Coal and nurses at Massachusetts St. Vincent Hospital have been on strike for hundreds of days. Going on strike for that long is an enormous sacrifice by workers. And the longer a labor dispute drags out, the more it favors deep-pocketed corporations. As workers go without paychecks, corporations can hire scabs to replace striking workers, shift jobs to other factories, or close down entirely. But the Biden administration has yet to express public support for the striking warrior met or St. Vincent workers. With each passing day, it gets harder and harder for the striking workers to extract a fair deal. Even a statement from the labor secretary would mean a great deal. Franklin Roosevelt is widely considered to be the most pro-union president in American history. If Biden wants to claim the mantle, FDR provides a good model to emulate. FDR and his labor secretary, Francis Perkins, got personally involved in the sit-down strikes of 1937 by encouraging the president of General Motors to recognize the United Auto Workers Union. In one particular historic exchange, Secretary Perkins chided the chairman of General Motors for reneging on a promise to meet with striking workers. You are a scoundrel and a skunk, she said to him. You can't talk to me like that, the chairman of GM responded. I'm worth $70 million. With Roosevelt's backing, the workers won and unlocked important gains that led to the growth of America's middle class. I have spent most of my adult life in the service of the people of my country, working to improve their living and laboring standards. And FDR's was not the only administration to have intervened in a labor dispute on behalf of working people. In 1962, JFK got involved in the negotiations between steel workers and U.S. Steel urging the company to raise wages for workers without increasing prices for consumers. He called the leaders of the union and the company to the Oval Office to broker a deal. When the company reneged on what they negotiated, he came down hard. The American people will find it hard, as I do, to accept a situation in which a tiny handful of steel executives whose pursuit of private power and profit exceeds their sense of public responsibility can show such utter contempt for the interests of 185 million Americans. Republican presidents since Ronald Reagan have used the power of the government to get involved in labor disputes on behalf of corporate power, not workers. They are in violation of the law, and if they do not report for work within 48 hours, they have forfeited their jobs and will be terminated. Too often, Democratic presidents have taken a stance of neutrality, but President Biden has the opportunity to level the playing field. The Biden administration should threaten to get involved to sort out labor disputes that it finds particularly reprehensible. It's in the national interest to show everyone involved that our government will act as a counterweight to egregious corporate power in labor conflicts. So let me put this in perspective for you. Right now, 232 days St. Vincent nurses have been on strike. 208 days, the warrior med workers have been on strike. We've covered that in detail on this show. Um, 21 days, Kellogg's workers are on strike. 12 days, the John Deere workers are on strike. Uh, There's also a a long list of workers who are about to strike. Joe Biden and his administration have a policy. We don't weigh in on specific disputes. 
then don't tell me you're the most pro-labor president in U.S. history or even a pro-labor president. So let me tell you something. As was detailed, did Ronald Reagan have the position? Yeah, I'm anti-union, but I'm not going to get involved in any specific uh, disputes. Not at all. He was on the side of management across the board. Uh, FDR was on the side of workers. And you saw the history of it there. Credit to Jonah Furman. Again, he does a wonderful job. Everybody should follow him on Twitter and follow Labor Notes where he follows this stuff in detail. Um, The fact of the matter is, now this is not them speaking, this is me speaking. The fact of the matter is, uh, the Republican Party is on the side of management and they take money from all the major special interests. Uh, But the Democratic Party is on the side of management too. And they take more money from the management side and the ownership side than they do from unions. And so a lot of the uh, support of unions is simply performative. If the president got involved on the side of workers, it could make a colossal difference. And um, I fear he's not going to do that because he probably views it as he has a responsibility as the president and since he took money from both the unions and the management side and the ownership side. He probably views it as like, hey, you guys fight it out. I'll say a couple flowery words about how I wish we could all get along and I like unions and then wash my hands of it and I'm done. It really is a dirty trick and it really highlights the main problem in our system, which is the corruption, which is the legalized bribery. Um, If Joe Biden wasn't taking money from the side of management and from the big businesses, maybe he would be inclined to jump in on the side of the workers. But we don't live in that world. We live in a world where he's swimming in corporate cash. So it just goes to show you how hollowed out the Democratic Party is now and how FDR, LBJ, even JFK, they're rolling over in their graves watching what's going on. I wouldn't hold my breath for Biden getting involved in, this, in these uh, labor disputes, but he absolutely should get involved. He should get involved on the side of the workers, and um, that would make a huge difference. Credit to um, More Perfect Union for that phenomenal video. Credit to Jonah Furman. Solidarity with all the striking workers. And don't stop. Don't stop. As I said in Crystal Kyle and Friends, nobody's coming to save us. We have to save ourselves. And the best way to do that is to go hard in a pro-union direction, uh, create more unions even though it's difficult, stand by unions, never cross a picket line, uh, really look down upon these scabs. So... I hope that there's some, you know, some resolution which the workers are okay with. Now, let me give you another one on the unions here. This is fascinating. So there's a bunch of strikes going on right now, um, solidarity with all the workers. You have the St. Vincent nurses on strike, on strike, 232 days they've been on it. Warrior Met Coal, uh, or excuse me, Warrior Met workers on strike. Uh, 208 days, Kellogg's workers, 21 days, John Deere workers, 12 days. Solidarity with all these workers. Um, I hope they can get a fair wage, good benefits, and I hope they they pull through. Um, Now, this is fascinating. When you poll the American people on these labor disputes, it is not even close. So, in fact, let me show you. Survey shows broad public support for worker strikes. Workers at companies like Kellogg's, Nabisco, and John Deere have hit the picket lines in recent weeks, hoping to get a better deal from their employers. A new survey suggests the public 
by and large, supports them. The AFL-CIO Labor Federation commissioned the Progressive Pollster Data for Progress to take the public's temperature on the strikes that have made headlines this summer and fall. The online survey of nearly 1,300 likely voters asked if they approve or disapprove of employees going on strike in support of better wages, benefits, and working conditions. By the way, that's a totally fair way to ask the question. I don't think that's a biased way of asking the question. 74% of respondents either strongly approved or somewhat approved of the strikes, while just 20% strongly disapproved or somewhat disapproved of them. 6% did not have an opinion. Not surprisingly, the backing of strikers was strongest among Democrats, 87% of whom approved of the walkouts, but support was still robust among independents and even Republicans, with 72% and 60% approval, respectively. Even 60% of average Joe and Jane Republicans are like, I support the workers. Wow. Wow. What does that show you? Again, guys, this is not, politics is not rocket science. And sometimes the answers are right in front of our faces and we do everything we can to avoid them. The fact of the matter is, economic populism like this, so being pro-union, pro-living wage, pro-worker, for health care for everybody, um, these ideas against outsourcing, these ideas are bipartisan among the public. Now, it's also bipartisan among the elites, but the bipartisanship is on the other side of the issue. So in other words, the Democratic elites and the Republican elites are anti-union, anti-living wage. At least enough Democrats to block a living wage are anti-living wage. Uh, they might m- pretend they're against outsourcing. All of them have voted for outsourcing. Virtually all of them have. But among the public, people want their neighbors to have a decent life with dignity. They want them to earn a good wage. They want them to be safe and secure. This is what they want. And I can't help but take away strong conclusions on politics from this as well. So in other words, not just policy. If you watch this show, you know what the correct policy is. You know the union is correct. You know people should have a fair wage and good benefits. But also the takeaway from this is Here's your answer, Democrats. Here's your answer. A fact I gave earlier in the show that I'm going to continue to give is this. In 1938, after FDR had already been in office for a while, um, Democrats had control of 80% of the House of Representatives and 80% of the Senate. The Republicans were shellacked. FDR was reelected four times. Why? How did you get the Democrats in such a dominant position? People think that's, that's impossible today. It's unheard of today. We should have slim majority of Democrats, and eventually it'll be a slim majority of Republicans. Because Americans got a little taste of social democracy, of policies that actually benefited regular working people materially, and they lost it, and they said, I want this all the time. And they voted in such a way. When you materially improve people's lives, they reward you at the polls. So in other words... If you had a Democratic Party today fully embrace economic populism and actually do the policies in that direction, you could get to the same place. You could have 80% Democrats in the House and 80% Democrats in the Senate, and you can't have a president who's reelected 
four times because now we have term limits. Back then we didn't. But you can do that. But people in a very lazy, sloppy way believe, no, it's always going to be like roughly 50-50 in this country. You're always going to have, you know, slim majorities for the Republicans or the Democrats. You're never going to have a dominant situation like this because partisanship is too high. Partisanship is very high. But you know what overrides partisanship? Material well-being. Material well-being. Some people who you think would never vote for a Democrat would vote for a Democrat if the Democrat highlighted the right issues and actually got the right policies implemented that materially improve their lives. Period. Period. And I don't think people get that. By the way, I'll go a step further. Because it's not even just about, well, in blue states, that's where you know, this will have the biggest impact. Nonsense. You could take the deepest red of red states. If you have a Democrat who's largely hands-off on social issues and goes hard in the paint on the economic stuff, I'm going to keep your job here. I'm going to raise your wages. I'm going to get you health care. I'm going to get you paid time off. I'm going to look out for you. Don't touch the social issues, but if you're in a deep red state, you go hard on the economic issues. I'm in favor of unions. I'm in favor of, a, you know, a fair wage. You could easily win there. And that's what drives me crazy, is the media also, they just mislead everybody on this front. The idea, like around Joe Manchin, for example, is, well, he's a West Virginia Democrat. So what that means is, he's got to be in favor of Wall Street deregulation. As if run-of-the-mill average Joe and Jane voters in West Virginia are like, Man, I sure do wish Goldman Sachs could get another break. They don't believe that. So they conflate the issue. They make it seem like Manchin not only has to be conservative on social issues, he also has to be conservative on economic issues. But it's exactly the opposite. Agreed on the social issues, that's just the nature of the culture in West Virginia. But on the economic issues, he can go as hard as he wants to the left. Just don't call it socialism, and you're going to clean up. You're going to win. There's this nihilism and this defeatism that exists in the country, and it's It's absurd. It's ridiculous. It's not real. You can win. We can win. We can get the right policies implemented and help people, and you can get rewarded for that at the ballot box. 60% of Republicans look at workers striking, look at unions doing this, and they they say, great, 60% of Republicans, 72% of independents, 87% of Democrats. It's not rocket science for the love of God, and nobody's saying it. Nobody's saying it. Nobody's saying the obvious. But, of course, what's the thing that mostly holds us back? It's not just like, oh, they have strategic differences with us, the elites, which is why they won't do it. No, it's not a strategic difference. It's not an ideological difference. The entire Republican Party is bought and owned by corporate America, and most of the Democratic Party is bought and owned by corporate America. That prevents them from doing it because they have to first and foremost serve their donors, which is why we are where we are. Jesus Christ, all you need is a principled leftist. Principled leftist who doesn't take big money, who only raises through small-dollar donations, and run this style of a campaign, you can win anywhere. In the blue states, you can go hard left on the social issues when you campaign and hard left on the economic issues, and you can win. And in the red states, if you just don't touch those, ex- uh, those uh, social issues and you go hard on the economic issues, you can win. This is real politics. This is uh, pragmatism 101. Now, by the way, I'm not even saying that if you're a Democrat and you do this strategy and you win in a red state, that when you legislate, you don't have to, you know, vote the right way on the social issues. You can. All I'm saying is you don't campaign on it. You don't put it front and center. You don't make any stupid mistakes that would immediately make you lose. So anyway, that's my breakdown. Amazing support for the protests. And the media is not covering it nearly enough. The elites are nowhere to be found. And it's just solidarity among the working class and across partisan lines, which is definitely something 
that should give you some solace and make you feel happy because we're not as far apart as many people want you to believe. Okay, next. All right, here we go. The question has come up. The question has come up. Will Bernie Sanders run again? So let me show you this new poll that just came out from YouGov. 2024 Democratic primary poll. If President Biden isn't running because he passes away or can't run or whatever. So Kamala Harris is number one in the poll, 22%. That's simply based off name recognition and being vice president. Bernie is number two at 12%. Buttigieg, 9%, Warren, 8%, Abrams, 7%, AOC, 7%, Brown, 4%. Okay. Now, understand something. Harris dropped 22 points from the last time they looked at that issue. 22 points from the last time they asked this question. Bernie was bumped up two points. Here's what's amazing. The dude is 189 years old and is almost certainly not going to run again. And people are still like, God, it's grim out there. What else are we going to do? Again, I think Kamala is in the position she's in solely from name recognition. That's it. Now, you could argue maybe Bernie's also there for name recognition, too, at least to some extent. Fair enough. But my guess is if you're looking at a dude who was in Congress during the Van Buren administration – That ain't just name recognition. That's like he's the one with the policies that I want. So I do think the support for Bernie is, as per usual, more substance-based. Because what are you going to do? Support him for his charisma? I don't think so. So I do think for Bernie it's more substance-based. I do think for Harris it's more name recognition-based. And then, man, it's bleak. The rest of that is bleak. Buttigieg, 9%. Uh, He's just like a dollar store knockoff of Obama, and he just comes across as phenomenally insincere, and he's flip-flopped on so many years, I don't know what he believes. There was a time he was like, I'm for Medicare for all, and then he surged in the polls a little bit, and he was like, Medicare for all, stupid, it's like communism, Fidel Castro, something. Um, Warren, I mean, she imploded like nobody's business. When she ran on economic stuff, she was at the top of the polls, and then as soon as she started going hard on the culture war stuff, she just tanked. Um... Abrams will be interesting because she's beloved by Democrats. She might want to take a crack at the presidency, and I do think she would go up in the polls if she did do that. Um, Substantively, she's obviously not a leftist ideal Democrat. AOC is at 7%. Listen, AOC, I know a lot of you aren't going to want to hear this, but fact of the matter is I don't think she has the chops to win a national election. I just don't think she has the chops. I think her instincts are generally pretty bad, actually. And she has a way of making people who could otherwise be on her side dislike her. She basically does the opposite of what I think good politics is, which is, you know, you almost craft the way you present yourself and your policies and your arguments in a way that could appeal to people who might not agree with you up front. She does the opposite. She's very, like, play to the niche subgroup. Um, And then Sherrod Brown at 4%. I mean... Who knows what can happen in 2024? It's a long way out. Maybe some boring-ass white dude will come up because that's what happened with Biden, right? Like everybody went, we got to go safe to be anti-Trump. And so they went with Biden. They thought he was the safest, even though he probably wasn't. Um, Biden won, of course, 
but, you know, I do think Bernie would have won as well. But the idea was, hey, at least we think he's the safest, so we'll go in that direction. He's the one who, who can defeat Trump the easiest. That was the thinking of a lot of voters. So maybe somebody like Sherrod Brown will, if Trump runs again, which looks likely, maybe somebody like Sherrod Brown will rise through the ranks. Maybe you'll have some other, maybe somebody like John Ossoff will run and he'll, you know, go up through the ranks. Maybe it'll be another boring white guy. I don't know. But um, is Bernie going to run again? Listen, a little bit of a clickbaity title. I think the answer is no. But the fact that he's polling at 12%, even though he came over on the Mayflower, I think is astounding. That's astounding to me. Because even I, after the last race, everybody knows I love Bernie, but even after the last race, I was like, oh, there's like literally a 0% chance he's going to run again, and nobody is going to really support him. Apparently 12% are still like, please, things are so bad. We don't care if you're literally a carcass become president. I think there's this, there's this latent sense on the left where deep down everybody kind of understands it's a transformative era. We need a transformative character, transformative leader. And Biden is a status quo manager. Harris would be a status quo manager. So there's this yearning for somebody to fill that gap. I do think somebody needs to fill that gap, but it's yet to be seen who it will be. And the sad thing is, when you look at Bernie's voting record, I don't know the next time there's going to be another Bernie. He, I mean, he is uniquely principled in a sense. I've had disagreements with him, but usually my disagreements with him are strategic. And based on the fact that I think he's kind of uh, a little naive about the game of politics. Um, and I think he's maybe a little soft interpersonally where he can kind of go along, get along with the party too much and he doesn't know how to throw his weight around and really exert pressure and use leverage. So my biggest issues with him are strategic, but on the substance, the policy substance, he's almost as, as good as he gets. And I don't know the next time we're going to get another Bernie. So we could be facing a pretty dark era because we need a new New Deal era, and unfortunately it looks like endless Clintonism is on the horizon. All right, next. Next, next, next. So Mitch McConnell um, was doing a press conference, and he was asked about the Biden agenda, He's asked about how Republicans are against raising taxes on the rich, and doesn't that make you guys kind of look like douchebags? And he says something that's incredible. He says two things that are incredible. Number one, he makes a comparison to FDR and the New Deal. And then number two, he, he actually says, Americans didn't ask for this. Oh, Mitch. Oh, Mitch, what are you doing? Take a look. People are not asking for any of this. Well, the larger issue is whether the country needs a big tax increase. Just to take you back to 2017, we lowered taxes for virtually all Americans. The corporate tax reduction produced a gusher of revenue, a stunning amount of increase in revenue as a result of lowering the taxes on corporations. Look, the country's awash in inflation. The country's flooded with money 
The last thing we need to do is to pile on with another massive reckless tax and spending spree. With regard to various pieces of it, we don't, we don't know what it's going to look like, which leads me to the second point. They do not have a mandate to do this. They're acting like this is the New Deal. Roosevelt had massive majorities, or it's the Great Society. LBJ had massive majorities. This is a 50-50 Senate, a three-seat majority in the House. The American people are not asking for any of this. Yes, they are. So first, look at this poll, data for progress. The wealthy and large corporations to pay for the Build Back Better plan. Hold on one sec. So this is a poll on uh, whether or not we should raise taxes on the wealthy. Increasing capital gains taxes on the wealthy polls at 72% support. It's plus 52. Limiting deductions for wealthy business owners, 71% support, plus 50. Raising income taxes on the wealthy is 2%, 71% support, plus 48. Increasing IRS funding to go after the wealthy, 68% support plus 44, increasing taxes on large corporations, 43% support, or excuse me, 43, 43 is strong support. It's 65% support overall when you include strong support and somewhat support, and that's plus 37. But I'm not done yet. I have more for you. So when you ask about the plan more generally, I'll just give you some of these because we've been through it 100 times, but long-term care investments, 79% support, that's plus 67 Modernizing K-12 school buildings, 73% support, that's plus 55. Electricity grid modernization, plus 58. Medicare price negotiation, 73% support, plus 58. Lowering the Medicare age, 59% support, that's plus 27. Universal pre-K, 59% support, that's plus 29. Tuition-free community college, 58% support, that's plus 25. By the way, not only is Mitch McConnell wrong that the American people aren't asking for this, in some polls, even a majority of Republicans are asking for this. Even a majority of Republicans are asking for this. So this is one of the strongest pieces of legislation in terms of how it polls that I've ever seen in my life for every individual provision within the legislation. So he's just factually wrong on that. But the, the FDR point is hilarious. Now, to be fair to him, he's saying, like, um, he just means in the breakdown of the Senate. Like, it's, they have a slim majority. They don't have the majorities that FDR had. Um, and that's true. Biden has a slim majority. He doesn't have the majority that FDR had. But what he doesn't understand is if legislation like this in its entirety was implemented, Democrats would have that kind of a majority, assuming you, of course, limit the gerrymandering and people have their voting rights and the Republicans don't have a built-in six-point advantage, which they currently do. Because, guys... This is my new favorite fact. I already brought it up in the past five minutes. But in 1938, after FDR had been president for a little while already, um, Democrats controlled 80% of the House of Representatives and 80% of the Senate. And FDR got reelected four times because Americans got a tiny little taste of social democracy. And they said, yes, yes, you're materially helping me and improving my life. I love this. I want to vote for you nonstop. Which is what happens when you materially improve people's lives. So if legislation like this got through, people's lives would be improved, and then the Democrats would be rewarded at the ballot box. He flips everything on its head. He does. 
American people don't want this. They absolutely want it. Every poll shows that. Well, this is like, this is, he is FDR. By the way, that's too much of a compliment to Joe Biden. As I said, when we interviewed uh, Professor Richard Wolf, that was one of the questions I asked him. If the $3.5 trillion bill was passed as is, is it the biggest transformation of the U.S. economy since the New Deal? His answer, yes. Now, to be fair, he went on to say, this is still like nothing compared to the New Deal. And he's correct about that. It is. It's way more incrementalist, not strong enough compared to the New Deal. Of course, I think it says something either way that this would be the biggest transformation of the economy since the New Deal. So, God, Mitch McConnell, he has a knack of just saying things that are flat out unpopular and like not caring or knowing that they're unpopular. And he has a knack of saying things that are completely untrue. And he acts like not only are they true, but it's obviously true. He's quite a character, man. He's quite a character. The Grim Reaper himself. By the way, the only reason, here's an interesting fact about Mitch McConnell, because you might watch, you know, you might see this guy and go, how the hell does he keep getting elected? It's actually very simple. As far as Kentucky goes, his home state, every single pork barrel project, increase in funding you can imagine, he supports for Kentucky. So in other words, socialism for me, not for thee. Money from the government, from taxpayers, for my home state, all the time, nonstop, I support it. But for the rest of the country, you can go fuck yourself. So the people in Kentucky do see a little bit of material benefit because Mitch McConnell's always going to bat for his home state only. And so that's one of the reasons why he keeps getting reelected. Because the politics of Kentucky are actually fascinating. A lot of Democrats win at the state level. There's a, a strong element of um, strong history of unions and workers' rights in that state. So at the state level, a lot of Democrats still win. But Mitch McConnell keeps winning as a senator. Why? Because he materially delivers for just his home state. All we're asking, Mitch, is that the material delivery you do for your home state, you extrapolate to the rest of the country. That's all we're asking for, and that's all this bill does. So Biden to FDR, and he thinks that's a bad thing, too. This isn't like FDR. This isn't like LBJ, the New Deal, or the Great Society. Oh, man. It, uh, if it was a little stronger, it would be. But even though it's not as strong as those, it would still be the biggest transformation of the U.S. economy since the New Deal, which would be phenomenal, which is why the American people love it, even though you either don't know they love it or you think they dislike it and you're factually wrong. Okay, next. This is a fun story to me. Um, There's a group called Cowboys for Trump. Now, Trump uh, was kind of a master at putting together these sort of weird coalitions. I remember he went on Alex Jones' show early on and got all the right-wing conspiracy nuts online on his side. Um, You know, he he always loved to tout the fact that Border uh, border Patrol supported him, a lot of police, and even some traditionally, you know, Democratic uh, special interest groups sort of flipped and supported him. Uh, which, again, is interesting, and people should look into his weird and unique ability to put together these coalitions. It's because early on, especially, he'd largely talk to anybody. Well, there's this group called Cowboys for Trump, and um, the founder of Cowboys for Trump not only turned on Trump, but turned on him hard at a public event. We supported President Trump because of his fight for justice as well. 
And for four years we cried, lock her up, lock her up, lock her up. We know she's a criminal. What did the president tell us? If I was president, if I was in charge of the law, you'd be in jail. Okay, Mr. President, you were in charge of the law for four years. At the end of your four-year time, the only ones that were locked up were men like me and others like me that had stood by the president the strongest. Whoa. So that last point he's making is in reference to the January 6th rioters who were locked up. Um, you know, there were people in the midst of the riot slash attempted insurrection, whatever you want to call it, there were people who clearly were, you know, breaking laws, they were breaking windows, uh, they had weapons in the Capitol. And I mean, it, needless to say, there were a number of terrible crimes that were committed. And so, you know, prosecutors are going after them. Now, to be fair, in, in the process of going after them, we have seen, unfortunately, bending of uh, civil rights and due process. And I completely am opposed to that. And in fact, if they were to try to do some Patriot Act 2.0 type thing as a result of this, I'd be the one leading the charge against it. Because what always happens is um, whenever there's a tragedy, the government exploits it to entrench themselves with more power and uh, to further exploit you know, your rights, further violate your rights. Exactly what happened after 9-11 with the Patriot Act and the NSA spying and Guantanamo, the list goes on and on. So, um, but having said that, were there people who genuinely committed crimes on January 6th and should be prosecuted? The answer is yes. So what he's saying is, hey, our people are being brought down. They're being prosecuted for what happened. I'm not okay with that. But he says, you know, the real reason why he's turning on Trump is you said you'd lock up Hillary and you didn't. Well, guess what? I'm going to, I don't know how much this is going to surprise you guys, but I'll say it because it's what I believe. Yeah, Hillary should be locked up. Of course she should be locked up. Duh. I mean, we're talking about a phenomenally corrupt so-called public servant. If you look into the Clinton Foundation, like David Sirota was actually covering that like a hawk. If you look into the Clinton Foundation stuff, the whole point of the Clinton Foundation was like, let's do pay-to-play corruption. Let's have foreign governments pay us and then Hillary, when she's Secretary of State, will do favors for those, um, you know, governments that are incredibly repressive and authoritarian because they paid us. We're going to look out for them. Um, never mind all the, the corporate money they've taken over the years. I mean, it's just astounding and doing the bidding of those corporations in the process. And, of course, war criminal. Look at what happened with Libya when she was Secretary of State. The, you know, what happened with Iraq. So Hillary is a criminal. Hillary should be locked up. But it's just hilarious to me that this is the thing that he turns on Trump over. It's funny. And it's actually an area of agreement I have with him. Now, of course, where I disagree with him is, I'm with Noam Chomsky. He said, every, if the Nuremberg laws were upheld, every post-World War II president would be hanged. True. Now, I'm against the death penalty, so I don't think they should be hanged, but should there be justice? Should they be locked up? Yeah. It's just a, a plethora of war criminals, one after the other after the other. You know, vaporizing innocent Yemeni babies from thousands of miles away, calling raids that kill children, as Trump did. That was his very first raid as, as president, killed um, a young girl, a young American girl, actually, the daughter of, I believe, Anwar al-Awlaki. Obama killed the son, and then I think Trump killed the daughter. Actually, don't quote me on that. It might, be, it might not be the daughter. 
but it's some other young American girl who was killed in the first raid Trump approved as president. He also increased drone strikes 432%, got rid of whatever red tape there was that was holding back uh, from even more drone strikes. A lot of crimes, man, a lot of crimes. Even the killing of um, Soleimani was a war crime. There was no declaration of war. You can't just decide to assassinate a top Iranian commander like that. You can't do that. He did that. He did that. The, the uh, sanctions on Venezuela, for example, the uh, invasion and occupation of Syria where we're jacking their oil, and Trump admits that. These are all illegal, so Hillary should be locked up. Trump should be locked up. Obama should be locked up. In a world that made sense where justice really was blind, this would be the case. It would. So uh, hilarious that Kyle Kalinske of Secular Talk and the Kyle Kalinske Show is in agreement with the Cowboys for Trump founder who wishes Hillary was locked up, and that's the main reason he turned on Trump. It is funny, though, like the other things didn't occur to you. Now, granted, he probably doesn't know about the other things because the media did a terrible job covering them. But, hey, Cowboys for Trump, dude, you want to know another thing that would probably piss you off if you knew it about Trump? Even though he portrayed himself as the anti-outsourcing president, there was a tremendous amount of outsourcing under his administration. In fact, his 2017 tax cut bill incentivized outsourcing jobs. That's something you should turn on him for. You know what else you should turn on him for? His gutting of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which returned billions of dollars to defrauded Americans. He was in favor of financial institutions ripping off the American people. He was in favor of, uh, at, his, at his inauguration, he took a million dollars from the predatory payday loan industry. Then he turned around when he got in office, dropped all the lawsuits against them, and dropped the regulations against them. So they can continue ripping off Americans. Ultimately, he's a status quo president who did status quo things, and he served Wall Street, and he served the military-industrial complex. So, yeah, you want to turn on him for not locking Hillary up? Great. I agree. Hillary should be locked up. Also turn on him over those other things. Now, again, maybe you, don't know, you didn't hear those things because I admit the media did a terrible job covering them. Now you know. Now you know. And Trump is also guilty of the same kind of corruption that Hillary was guilty of, too. The Clintons have the Clinton Foundation, pay-to-play corruption, obvious. Uh, Trump, through his hotel in D.C., took hundreds of thousands from the Saudis and then turned around and gave them a multi-billion dollar weapons deal. Clear violation of the Emoluments Clause of the Constitution, wildly corrupt. I'm just telling you. I'm just telling you. There's a lot of things that are sketchy about all these presidents, and you should be objective in who you support and who you don't support and what your principles and your standards are. So, hey, you turned on Trump. That's good. Uh, I agree with him about the Hillary thing, but there's also other reasons you should have turned on him. Uh, definitely not the January 6th thing. You know, I think that uh, some of those people deserve to be prosecuted if they actually broke laws. Okay. Let's continue. So Neil Cavuto has multiple sclerosis, and he's been dealing with it for a very long time. Um, so he's immunocompromised. And he actually recently caught COVID. Now, that's a scary proposition because it just happened with, with Colin Powell. I mean, he was immunocompromised. He had blood cancer. He had Parkinson's. And then he got COVID. And even though he was vaccinated, he ended up passing away. Now, again, the vaccine is 90% effective against severe illness, hospitalization, and death. It's a very effective vaccine. But... The people who perhaps it wouldn't be as effective for would be exactly in that category. They're older. You know, Colin Powell's in his 80s. I think Neil Cavuto's in his 60s. Uh, but 
and he, older and immunocompromised. So, you know, this, maybe if he had a booster, maybe that would have been able to stave off death. I don't know. But um, Neil Cavuto got COVID, and he, he released a statement and said, listen, I want everybody out there to get vaccinated. Um, thank God I'm vaccinated. If I wasn't vaccinated, I think the COVID that I have would be a hell of a lot worse. So he might think that he could have died, or at the very least, he would have had a much more severe illness if he wasn't vaccinated. He made a full recovery. He's back on air. Look at the reaction from the Fox viewers. We got Vince, uh, Vince tweets. Hey, guys, I bought a new car after being told it was the best. Then I bl- it blew up after I left the car lot. So now I'm begging everyone to please buy the same car. Sorry, I was just pretending to be Neil Cavuto, which I think is uh, being a little uh, sarcastic there in that last tweet. Uh, we got uh, TJ, who also emails. It's clear you've lost some weight with all this stuff. Good for you. But I'm not happy with less of you. I want none of you. I want you gone, dead, kaput. Finit, get it? Now take your two-bit advice, deep six it, and you. That's uh, rather harsh, Neil. Whoa. So, uh, but well, I figured I'd relate that to you. For the Sopranos uh, prequel? Yes, yes. it does sound right. kind of yeah. like that. Okay, now. Listen, he's taking it like a good sport, and I don't know if his intention in showing these comments is to really highlight the brain rot that's out there and the brain worms that Fox News has given people and One American News Network has given people and Newsmax has given people. But the fact of the matter is, that is monstrous. So dude had COVID, was immunocompromised, said, please, everybody get vaccinated, and I'm thankful I'm vaccinated, and now people are wishing him dead. They're wishing him dead. See, this is what is amazing to me. Um, It's for people to say, I'm so anti-vaccine that... Even if you don't force me to take it, but you say, hey, you probably should take it, and I took it, and that people think is worthy of death, it's worthy of death to advocate that people take a vaccine, which is 90% effective. That's worthy of death. There there was this other story that came out not too long ago. So, you know, in the midst of this pandemic, uh, in many places, there, there have been mask mandates, especially, you know, definitely before the vaccine came out, they were very widespread. Um... And so stores, maybe if you walk in, you're not wearing your mask, and say, hey, could you please wear a mask? And then people would do it. There were some stories in the news uh, in deep red America where it was the opposite. They had a no masks allowed policy. So in other words, even though they pretend like they're leaning on individual freedom and liberty arguments, like you should be able to make up your mind for whatever you want to do. You don't want to wear a mask, don't wear a mask. Clearly, that's actually not their real position. The real position in those instances was, I'm actually against individual liberty and freedom and you making up your own mind, and I want to enforce my anti-mask position, which is just petty and absurd and tyrannical. And this is an instance where they sort of want to enforce an anti-vaccine position. If you advocate for the vaccine, now Neil Cavuto, by the way, is reasonable. He never said, I'm for hard mandates. I don't even know if he's for soft mandates. I think he's for, he just tells people you should get it, even though he's for people making up their own minds. Even that comment to them, just advocating for the vaccine, even that's worthy of you should die. You should die. This has, it's insane to me that masks have become a culture war issue. It really is. That's wild to me. You would think just basic hygiene stuff in the middle of a pandemic 
would, uh, would be common sense. By the way, masks also are not 100% effective. But generally speaking, if you cover your mouth, you know, say you cough, you're, of course, less of what's coming out of your mouth is going to get out there for other people to breathe in if your mouth is covered. Again, not 100% effective, but they have done studies on this, and masks are very effective. They're very effective. Um, in fact, I think this is my own little uh, bro science speculation here, but whenever there were upticks of COVID and, you know, people were still masked at the time, I think that has to do with the eyes. I actually did a deep dive on this one night, and I read a bunch about it. A virus can get into your eyes, and then you can get infected. So, but people, some people took away from that, oh, masks don't work because there's like a surge of COVID in an area where most people are masked. And no, it could be that people aren't covering their eyes. So the virus, if you're, you know, somebody could cough or you're, somebody is a super spreader, they're talking in an enclosed room with people and the virus can get in your eyes and then you could get COVID that way. So now do your own research on that. You know, don't take everything I say with a grain of salt, like you take from everybody else, have a healthy skepticism. But when I did a deep dive on that, that sort of was my takeaway, that people stressed over and over, you know, covering your nose, covering your mouth, and that definitely helps lower the spread along with social distancing. But if your eyes are not protected also, people could just, the virus could just get in through your eyes and then infect you that way. So there was no stressing of maybe people should wear sunglasses or eyeglasses or goggles might look a little goofy, but you get the point. Um, but people want Neil Cavuto dead because he advocated others get the vaccine because he was immunocompromised and he got COVID. Look, clearly he wants to reach herd immunity. Of course, you'd want that, especially if you're immunocompromised. If we hit herd immunity and if everybody else gets vaccinated, you know, you're not going to have some unvaccinated kid spread it to grandma or grandpa or mom or dad or somebody who's obese or somebody who has three or four comorbidities. So, I mean, his comments were totally level-headed and reasonable, and the response from some of the audience is, you should die for saying it. Anybody who's contributing to this uh, anti-vax hysteria should really take a long, hard look in the mirror, because this is one of the consequences of that. Sort of a fervor and a, a vicious tone on the side of, anti-vaccine hesitancy, you know? It's really crazy. It's really crazy. He's taking it like a good sport, but that is definitely disturbing. Now, let's go to Charlie Kirk. So Charlie Kirk is uh, doing some tour where he's doing these speaking gigs all over the place. And um, one of his fans in the audience asks a very disturbing question about when it's okay to start killing leftists. You're brave. You're brave for what you say and the fact that you stand up there and say it, and I appreciate it. I think we all appreciate it, actually, because there's not a lot of people that have the balls to do it. But I want to ask you something a little bit out of the ordinary. 
So, prepare yourself. <laughs> At this point, we're living under a corporate and medical fascism. This is tyranny. When do we get to use the guns? No, and, I, and, I, and I'm not, that's not a joke. I'm not saying it like that. I mean, literally, where's the line? How many elections are they going to steal before we kill these people? So, well, no. I, 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 no, hold on. I, I'm, no, stop. Hold on. Now, I'm going to denounce them and tell you what. Because you're playing into all their plans, and they're trying to make you do this. That's okay. Just hear me out. You started with a compliment, so at least give me a little bit. <laughs> they are trying to provoke you and everyone here. They are trying to make you do something that will be violent, that will justify a takeover of your freedoms and liberties, the likes of which we have never seen. We are close to have, hold on, we are close to have momentum to be able to get this country back on a trajectory using the peaceful means that we have at us. So to answer your question, and I just think it's, you know, overly blunt, we have to be the ones that do not play into the violent aims and ambitions of the other side. They fear, let me say this very clearly, they fear us holding the line with self-control and discipline, taking over school board meetings. They're the ones that are willing to use federal force against us. And I know that people get fired up. We are living under fascism. We are living under this tyranny. But if you think for a second that they're not wanting you to all of a sudden get that next level, Woo! Oh, boy. Okay, so let's go through this. He says we're living under corporate medical fascism. Um, we are living in a corporatocracy. We are living in an oligarchy and a kleptocracy. Uh, the billionaires run the show. The corporations run the show. And it is tyrannical and dictatorial in some very real ways. Can't downplay that at all. It's the reality. When he says we live under medical fascism, that's just wrong. Now, I assume what he's talking about is vaccine mandates, because that's the thing that all these people are against. But what's astounding to me is the outright war that has been waged on nuance in this conversation, because we don't have a hard vaccine mandate in this country. We don't. We have, uh, from the Biden administration, what would be considered a soft mandate, because if you don't want to get the vaccine, you don't have to get it. You can get tested. And it's for businesses with, only, with 100 employees or more. Now, are there individual businesses that say, you have to get the vaccine, no excuses? Yes. That would be an issue you should take up with your individual business. It is. So if I hadn't had a business with 80 employees, let's say, um, my policy would be vaccine or test. That would be my choice to do that policy. If somebody has a business with 80 employees and they say vaccine, no excuses. Yeah. If you have an issue with that, you should speak up about it. You should talk to them about it and you should maybe try to get it to vaccine or test. So the issue you have, that's not medical fascism. That's a corporation having a lot of control over you and your autonomy and your liberty and your freedom. And if you have an issue with that, well, my friend, welcome to leftism. Because, you know, we've made the comparison a lot. It didn't come from me. I first heard it from Noam Chomsky. But it is true that corporations function as little tyrannies. The owner, who's like the emperor, and you have a manager underneath them. That's like, you know, the person who runs the day-to-day, -day, the boss. And then you have the workers underneath them. And you basically have to do whatever your bosses say. Now, I have a problem with that. I would like a much more democratic economy. Um, and seems like, in this instance at least, the problem this person is highlighting would be solved by a more democratic economy. So if you have an issue with the hard vaccine mandates, take it up with the individual businesses because they're the problem. Biden's policy, I think, is way more reasonable, a vaccine or test. Okay, that's my opinion on that. Now, 
he says, he goes on to say, like, how many elections are we going to let these people steal before we kill them? So we need to kill these people. Well, I mean, you're kind of advocating for genocide there. So as a general rule, I'm anti-genocide. I know, hot take. Um, If I'm being overly kind in my interpretation, which I shouldn't be, he says, well, why shouldn't we kill just, just the people who stole the election, so not the average Joe and Jane Democratic voters? Again, I'm being way too kind in giving him that interpretation, but I'll give him, grant him that interpretation here for a second. Um, even that is insane because the election wasn't stolen. People have been so thoroughly brainwashed by relentless propaganda. Guys, I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to take the word of the 60 court cases, 60 plus court cases. Trump lost every single one except like one, and the one that he won was over some procedural nonsense which wouldn't change the outcome anyway. They did the audit in Arizona, and they found out Biden won by more votes than they originally thought he won by. There is no reason, based on the evidence, to suggest Donald Trump won this election. He did not win this election. He lost the election. He did. So, based on a complete lie and misinformation, he's now in favor of murder, and he thinks that's justice. Well, that's a problem. And look, this is one of the issues with rampant misinformation, is this is leading people to extremism. Now, there's also material conditions leading people to extremism, and we shouldn't downplay that either. But, you know, listen, if you're One American News Network, if you're Newsmax, Maybe those hosts are crazy enough to actually believe the bullshit. If you're a Fox News host, you know that Joe Biden won this election. If you're an elected Republican, I mean, there's been reporting on this behind the scenes. Every single elected, uh, you know, Republican congressperson, save maybe three, know that Joe Biden won the election. And every senator, every single Republican senator knows Joe Biden won the election. Say that shit. Come out and say it if you're a Republican senator. Come out and say it if you're a Republican congressperson. Say enough with the nonsense, but they don't want to do it because they're afraid of Donald Trump's wrath and they're afraid that they'll lose their next election. But listen, that point can't just be coming from the hacky liberal elite media assholes because nobody likes them. Nobody likes CNN. Nobody likes MSNBC. Nobody should like them. And if they're the only one saying Joe Biden won the election, that's not going to convince people like this. You need like, in all of the above approach from every corner of the political conversation to be like, bro, look, you're wrong. Here's the evidence. Who's the one leading the charge now on this is a stolen election? The My Pillow guy. The My Pillow guy. And every time he has one of these events, he embarrasses himself. He doesn't show any evidence to conclude that Trump won. And they changed the conspiracy like three or four times. Oh, it was Venezuela. They, Maduro hacked the voting machines and worked with the company, and that's what ha- Maduro hacked the voting machines. And now they moved to no, it's China. China did it. What a pathetic joke, man. So, look, just be careful. Like, nobody could say you're directly responsible if you're spreading the misinformation for violence that might happen as a result of it. But you certainly didn't help. You might, there might be some borderline people out there who take your words and then go way too far with it. And you should look in the mirror over that and check yourself. And, you know, for somebody like Charlie Kirk, now his answer here was fine. He's like, don't do that. I denounce that. But then you can't go on to say, as he does, like, well, we are fighting fascists. 
no, you're not. And even in your attempt to talk the person down off the ledge, you're giving them more fuel to stay on the ledge. And that's a problem. That's a problem. Um, I would say that when it comes to the culture war stuff, you got to turn down the heat. Turn it down. Because the fact of the matter is, and I'll end on this point, the fact of the matter is, yes, we have people in this country have massive disagreements on culture war stuff. People in this country have massive disagreements on social issue stuff. And maybe we're never going to see eye to eye on that stuff. It's fine. That's the whole point of living in a society. Having said that, there's way more agreement than you realize on the economic stuff and on improving people's material well-being. Sure, you have the cranks on either end of the spectrum that, um, you know, might genuinely wish harm for the other team, but most Americans support people living a life with basic uh, human decency, dignity, freedom, respect, and, um, you know, we just covered the story. 87% of Democrats support the unions that are currently striking for better working conditions, better wages. 72% of independents support the strikes. And even 60% of Republicans support the strikes. We're a lot closer together than people think. Living wage. In Florida, Trump won in the 2020 election. Uh, But getting a higher minimum wage got 60% of the vote in a direct vote. So the same people voted for Trump, some of them voted for a living wage. There's a lot more agreement than you think out there. There really is. Again, social issues we might never see eye to eye. Fine. Living wage, uh, workers' rights, stopping outsourcing, ending the corruption, we do see eye to eye. We do see eye to eye, and that should be stressed. You know, Um, the craziest asshole on the right would agree with the notion that corporations and billionaires shouldn't run our government and rig the political system in their favor. So we got to turn down the temperature Highlight, on the, uh, highlight the agreements that we have and understand that we're not as far apart as people think we are. And unfortunately, the misinformation and the terrible rhetoric and the relentless lies about a stolen election have led some people to be too far gone. And this guy's one of them, where he's literally thinking about doing violence and killing people over a complete and utter falsehood. And that is an absolute tragedy and it's dangerous. Okay. You guys are going to love this. So uh, there's a show called The Good Liars or a podcast called The Good Liars. Forgive me for not knowing too much about them. But um, they went to a Trump rally. They talked to a Trump fan. And he gave us the most hilarious contradiction of all time. Watch. Everyone who has taken the vaccine will be dead within 5 to 15 years guaranteed. So why did Donald Trump authorize Operation Warp Speed then to create the vaccine? I think a lot more people would have died. But that's why I'm here. So anybody who got the vaccine is going to be dead within 5 to 15 years. But Trump made the vaccine to save lives. So you're giving Trump credit for saving lives by doing Operation Warp Speed and creating the vaccine and cutting the red tape and making it happen faster. He gets credit for that, but also the vaccine 
is a mass extermination hoax. That's astounding. The disconnect in that dude's mind is astonishing. How do you square that circle? But listen, I mean, what does this show more than anything? There is, like, there is no coherent worldview among folks like this. Everything is completely through a partisan lens, and it's like a piecemeal approach to trying to make sense of the world. So glaring contradictions are just, they don't register. They don't register. And I hate to be an asshole, but that does mean you're sort of unintelligent. It does. That's what it means. It means you're not principled, you don't have standards, and you're unintelligent with your diagnosis of stuff. Because if you can contradict yourself that thoroughly within the span of 15 seconds, man, to say you didn't think through this is the understatement of the century. I like Trump, so therefore, Trump saved lives with Operation Warp Speed, but I hate the vaccine because my right-wing, partisan, hack tribal social group on Facebook doesn't like the vaccine. Therefore, the vaccine is going to kill people in 5 to 15 years. How do you not? You can't have both. You can have one or the other. You can have one or the other. By the way, there's an answer here. What's the correct one? Trump deserves credit for Operation Warp Speed. It's probably the best thing he did. The best thing he did was Operation Warp Speed and cut that red tape and get that vaccine out quickly. And I'm fine admitting that as somebody who's solidly on the left. Because I'm not a hack. And I'm not a tribal loser. But this guy, I mean, I think it speaks for itself. Don't be this person. Use your brain. Think things through. Because, honestly, this is just embarrassing. He just showed his whole ass. And nobody wanted to see it. Final story of the day. Now, a lot of you guys might be wondering, well, what the hell? Why did we hear so much about the Afghanistan withdrawal? And it was, you know, everybody was flipping out and Biden's approval rating plummeted because the media did nothing but shit on him relentlessly for two or three weeks as this was going on. Why did we hear so much about that? We didn't hear so much about the war when stuff was happening and we were there and it was terrible, like when we allied with warlords who had child sex slaves. There wasn't hair on fire coverage over that. There wasn't hair on fire coverage over the Afghanistan papers, which found the whole war was a lie. When we left, it was endless outrage. Well, we may have our answer now. Breaking, this is from, I believe, a political reporter, Lee Hudson. Breaking, Raytheon tech CEO Greg Hayes says the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan has a $75 million impact in sales for the company. Maybe that's why the withdrawal was portrayed as the worst thing that ever happened. All right, now look at this. This is from Open Secrets. This is the defense industry, long-term contribution trends. So in 2020 alone, there was about $45 million that was donated by the so-called defense industry. Really, it's the offense industry. It's the military-industrial complex. In 2018, excuse me, in 2018, $30 million dollars. 2016, a little over $30 million. 2014, just under $30 million, like 27 or so million dollars. And you could see it there. You could see it there. So let me explain to you what happens. The defense industry donates to the politicians. The politicians vote for contracts for the defense industry that gets them phenomenally wealthy. See, this is just an investment. This is an investment of the defense industry. If you give money to the politicians, you're getting a return on investment because then they're going to give you contracts that are worth way more. 
So it's good for business. Uh, and also, the money that's given to the politicians comes with the understanding that, remember, we're the world police, and we're the human rights leader, and so we need to be involved in all these places, and we need to give weapons to our allies, and we need to do this for safety. So remember, don't be anti-war, because anti-war is bad. Well, on top of that, you also have the media. There are times where there are literal uh, defense contractor commercials that run on the Sunday shows. What? what do you, so what's going on here? Is the idea that the average person watching Meet the Press needs to go buy, uh, you know, uh, a, a missile from Lockheed Martin? No. The reason they give money to the networks is to buy influence. So they're buying influence when the defense contractors give uh, corporate media money. And then what happens? All the incentives are lined up perfectly where everybody melts down if we pull out of a war. And that's what happened. Joe Biden took all the boots on the ground out, credit to him on that front. By the way, there's now chatter that maybe, maybe we're going to cut a deal with Pakistan so we could still bomb in Afghanistan and keep our drones in Pakistan. Oh, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. For the love of God, I hope that falls through and that we can't do that. Uh, but we'll wait and see what happens on that front before we comment. Anyway, so we end the war in Afghanistan, and it's portrayed as the worst thing in the world. The reason it's portrayed as the worst thing in the world is because of the incentive structure and because a lot of people got really wealthy off of that war. And now they're not. Raytheon lost $75 million. That's why they didn't want that war to end. That's why it was portrayed to you as the worst thing in the world. This is the military-industrial complex in action. That's what this is. And it should disgust you. Really is something, isn't it? These decisions are rarely made with a sober evaluation of the evidence and the law in mind and principles in mind. Almost always the donors get the last say. And guess what? When they don't, in the rare instances that they don't, this is what happens. They flip out, they cry, they pretend like it's the end of the world, and they move public opinion massively. Because if the entire media is saying the same thing in unison and the other politicians are saying the same thing in unison, that drives public opinion. So what happened is the American people still had the position we should get out of Afghanistan, but Biden's numbers plunged on the issue of Afghanistan because the way in which we got out was too sloppy and too messy. So they were trying to build the groundwork for you got to go back in. You have to do it. And we might now. But this is what it was all really about. Raytheon didn't want to lose that $75 million. And so they raised holy hell over it, just like the other defense contractors. Honeywell, Boeing, you name them. So, terrible. This is the rot in our system. There should be no such thing as private campaign contributions. No such thing. Because the politicians are never going to represent us and do the right thing if, first and foremost, they're serving their donors and their donors have the exact opposite agenda of the one we want. The American people don't want to be in all these wars. Military-industrial complex does. And usually they look at the military-industrial complex and not us. And you know why. All right, guys. We're done, baby. I love you guys. Check out Chris McConnell and Friends this week. we got Jordan Chariton talking about the John Deere protest or strike and much more. Uh, we'll talk to you soon. Everybody have a great rest of your day. Peace. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.